0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at BroadwayCurtainPodcast.
3: Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify.
2: You would be hard-pressed to find an artist who is more closely identified with the sophisticated world of cabaret than today's guest. For decades upon decades, he has brought fresh life to the evergreen works of Noel Coward, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, and Irving Berlin.
3: Audiences in Manhattan, London, Brazil, Paris, Vienna, just to name a few, have been transported back to time when music was melodic. Lyrics were poetic, and optimism was the foundation of the times, all because of today's guest. And we love him for that. To tell Mm. us what
2: it was like to work with such legends as Ted Hook, KT Sullivan, Frank Langella, Allison Janney, and so many others. Here is the crown prince of Cabaret, Steve Ross. Steve, I'm so happy you're with us today.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
2: Steve, can you take us back to the first time you sat down at a piano in front of an audience, regardless of age? And what that experience was like
1: that would be my uh, my first music teacher i reckon i was seven or eight and she had a little recital for the members of her class i suppose i was extremely nervous i was nervous for i would venture to say the first 25 years of my career (laughs) (laughs) uh just paralyzed with nerves. but that was it and even today if i'm at the end of a program the shadow of those nerves still comes. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah. I don't really care so much anymore because most of the time I I know I do the songs that I know. But I remember being very very nerve wracking for me. That I was probably be about seven or eight years old, and I would be in a little recital with Mrs. Mahoney, who could forget. Yes,
4: her.
3: Mrs. Mahoney. Course. There we go. Thank you, Mrs. Mahoney.
1: Teaching the piano. Maybe you're a Kevin. You had a Mrs. Mahoney. I don't know. Of, I had a
3: of course Mrs. Benjamin. Of course, but those first teachers were were epic. Yeah, they, were, they taught us everything we know, really, when it comes to music All theory and the basics.
1: The, yeah. Then Yes, that's right. So that was what that was. Well. But anyway, I, my mother played the piano by ear. She played in college. And she played songs. And I always use this as an interesting thing about the brain, meaning that when I would go in to talk to her, <laughs> my shrink said, well, that wasn't very nice that she didn't stop playing. But I was OK. I, I learned a big lesson. She would continue to play and talk. And it was very interesting because if she had been like many people, I can't look at the music; I have to stop and play. So that served me in very good stead working at piano bars because you're supposed to be able to talk and play and talk, okay. and, talk and talk and play. Wow. Uh, so I, then I then I didn't know that you didn't play by ear. Mm. I, so I don't, it was always interesting. I wonder if I had been had a different, uh, if I had a different mother or a different person. I would maybe have directed a Durelt in a different way. Mm -hmm. If somebody really wants to have a conversation and I have to keep the music going, I have one go-to piece that goes into total automatic pilot. The name of that piece is blue moon. Oh. Whenever they're talking, no, but I'm going to see you at five o'clock. So I go blue moon and I can play it. And as if it's not me playing. Oh, wow. (laughs) Steve, what, what was some of your mom's favorite songs? I remember two things that she played melancholy baby you laugh and my man oh so, those are the two things that i remember it was oh. a balance with a lot of sweeping arpeggios and everything i never heard her play an uptune she yeah. always as you as you might imagine i mean right if you like to play you might play at uptune for fun. but most of the time you i think you want to express yourself it would be those powerful love emotions. That's right. I I remember her playing that over and over again.
3: And growing Uh, up in New Rochelle, did you come into the city a lot? Do you have memories of, of, did you go to see
1: shows? uh, Yeah, we did. uh, After, I lived in Utah for a while. Mm -hmm. As they say in Dames at Sea, U2, yes, Utah. (laughs) 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 The brilliant life. (laughs) Uh, And we came back. My father was not in the best of health, so bless his heart. My mother's father... Took seven people in for two years, and lived in this nervous shelter. But I had an auntie name. In form former days, you had a bunch of kids, and one of, and if you were lucky, one of them became either a priest or a nun, and one of them, generally a woman, stayed home to take care of the parents when they were older, and that was the lot for better or for worse of my aunt. Mm-hmm. But I came along, and of anybody that I was this, I loved music, and I loved this, and she taught me how to dance, and So I was her favorite, and we drove into town to see musicals. So that was my beginning when I was sophomore junior year in high school because of her.
3: And were you studying, you know, as you studied piano, and you you probably found, you know, popular music, but were you studying classically as well? I mean, were you really
1: doing the technical stuff? I was supposed to be playing classical music. I remember one of my teachers gave me the first, I mean, I've been playing by ear and all that, but she gave me quite Christmas. So I had to play, I had to look at all the notes and play all of the notes in the arrangement. And that, I didn't like that much. (laughs) (laughs) My version would be better. Uh, But I, yeah, I studied classical music for a while. I'm not a patient person. Mm -hmm. I'm not a person that's dedicated to details. So it it was not for me. And I, I was in Catholic University and uh, by then, it was in the early, like 60, 59, 60 and I went to the teacher, and you know, I realized that I didn't have the, the discipline to do that. Were you
3: going to study music? I mean, is that w- what your uh, focus I came, was?
1: I went to the army. I came out of the army in 1963, and I thought, well, I better do this, finish this high school thing, this college mm. thing. So I went over to Catholic University, and I studied for a while with this teacher there, who was a well-known piano teacher there. But I, my heart wasn't in it. Mm. The, and in one of the, uh, I already had my own apartment. I was already working in a ragtime piano bar. This is oh. 1960. Uh, I guess it would have be been 1960 because I, oh. I I got drafted in 1961. So it was right over in there that I had gone back. Oh, before that, I was in, oh, what's that other thing I was in? Oh, yes, the Catholic Church. Oh, um, <laughs> I was studying to be a priest at one
3: time. (laughs) That's right. You went to seminary for a little bit. That's Uh, right.
1: Right. Playing the organ, you know, using the thing. Anyway, so I came back and then, well, let's go to to that. And one of the few decisive moments was, and I'm not a very audacious person, but I was sitting in, and I always hated science and physics and all that. And in the Jesuit education, one had a choice, even – when you were a freshman, you could either go with languages, French, or, or you could go to biology. And needless to say, I chose the former. Hmm. So when I got back to Catholic university, they said, oh, well, you have to take some kind of science course. And I said, oh, really? Uh, so they, I remember, everybody knew each other because they'd been, this was a sophomore year. Everybody knew each other and they were chatting away. And uh, I think it was biology or chemistry. And I I didn't know what I did. I hated it. I didn't know what to do. And I realized at the end of that class, I didn't want to be in college anymore. Mm -hmm. In the first of some decisive moves of my life, you know, sometimes there's a thing when you seem compelled to do that. Right. I walked out of the school, went to my little Volkswagen and never looked back. And I went to my job and I went to my apartment. And that was all she wrote, as they say.
3: What was your sort of plan? I mean, did you say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to. I am going
1: to did not have a plan. I just wanted to get by and have fun. So Steve, let me
2: ask you how, what was your mother's reaction to, I'm leaving this college world behind and I'm going to go play piano.
1: They, uh, to their credit, they did not chastise me. Uh, They had already paid for a semester of it. So they weren't happy about that, I'm sure. But uh, (laughs) they were cool about it. They were, I mean, I, they were kind of behind me all the time. I wasn't having to fight them. And uh, I think my mother really uh, loved the fact that I was doing what she wanted to do. Fortunately, mm, uh, she was allowed to, to, to go to music school. One time, I she was with a friend of mine in the Algonquin once. And she, she wasn't given to these kinds of things. But after one of my numbers, and she said to him, my friend, you know, I could have done that. Mm. And my mother took me to the lessons, and my aunt taught me how to. So I had wonderful people of that generation promoting me. So I've been playing the piano for the seventy-seven years. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! A lot of years. It is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it.
1: It's wild, isn't it? I mean, what a what an amazing blessing and gift it has been to me to be able to share that with people.
2: Yes, Yes. Steve. What do you know about musicianship now? Your musicianship now that you wished you knew when you first started out.
1: Musicianship—it's a bit of a collective thing. Mm-hmm. I was at a party last night, mm-hmm. at a cocktail party or something, and somebody, a classical musician, played. And then my friend happens to have a fantastic Steinway, and of course, like <laughs> the great traditions of George Gershwin and Peter Howard, we can't not play a piano if we see it. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I can't not go and at least play a chord. And uh, the crowd was milling around, and I had this wonderful experience. Uh, I was trying to tell him that when I told him about the project. I sat down and started to play my romance, and it was so beautiful. The song was so beautiful. And if my fingers, when they always caress the keys, I was playing lightly. I was part of the sound Cloud that was in the room of people chatting and little clicking of the glasses, and I felt well, very much a part of some kind of tapestry. Yeah. And I also, because I'm sure Kevin, you know, if the piano was good, you do play differently, it summons different musical ideas. That's right. that would play on a bad piano, it just does. Yeah. So I was playing these things and adding these chords quietly. I didn't necessarily want anybody to hear. That was interesting because I'm a bit of a ham, but I was doing <laughs> very quiet ballads. I thought, and it was just took me away. And I don't know whether I would have thought about that all those years back. I it see, was kind of a channeling of, of of a gift in a way. Right, yeah. right.
2: Steve, let's imagine that you only get to play one song on the piano for the rest of your life. It can be a Steinway, it can be whatever pa- piano you want, mm. but. One song for the rest of your life, what song would that be?
1: In the Still of the Night.
2: Mm. How come In the Still of the Night?
1: I, I, I answer that to be my favorite song. Cole Porter and I have much in common, and, mm. and he's... My, I, I labeled him as my favorite composer, but that's not doing justice to the other... No, 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 but that's, we all have course. someone we gravitate towards, yeah. When did he first sort of, you know, appear in your life? I mean,
3: was, was he someone that as a well, teenager... My mother,
1: my mother played that other song she played... very first it was Night and Day. Oh, yes. Uh, And she was playing, after she played Melancholy Baby and My Man, she played Night and Day. I remember her playing (laughs) Night and
2: Day. Steve, you know, when people talk about Cole Porter now, I mean, I think what he gets praised for so often is his brilliant lyrical writing. But people, I think, forget to talk about his brilliance as a composer. Can you talk a little bit about his compositions and what you enjoy about those, especially in The Still of the Night?
1: Because to me, it's... The the greatest one of the great marriages of a line of poetry, a lyric, and music in the in the bridge of that song. And it's a question that every lover has always asked everyone. Will you love me? As and I love you. Are, you. are you my life to be? My dream come true in the keyword or, or then it this incredible falling out extended, extended, extended until to nothing. That's, that's why I think it's a genius song. It captures so much of, of me, of any romantic person, but very much of him. He wrote mm-hmm. so many songs about the night because he, laid, he led a covered life. Mm. And the night covered so much over. And in the still of the night looking out. I think it's a, I, I have played that song for uh, 75 years. I never get tired of, I never yeah. get tired of playing these great songs. Steve,
2: who's a composer that you feel should be included when we talk about the Great American Songbook but doesn't get the credit that they deserve? I mean, I think when we talk about the Great American Songbook, we talk Berlin, we talk Porter, we talk Rodgers and Hart. Whose name should be in that list we don't talk about?
1: Well, you're not necessarily talking about Herman Hupfield, who had one song. I mean, that's the one-song people whose songs were right. as
4: past yeah. time
1: to by. What, what was his name? Herman Herman Hopfield. Okay. And what was his song? As Time Goes By. As Time Goes By. Oh, oh right. my gosh. Okay. <laughs> he was the Margaret Mitchell of the songwriting. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. So I would include him, but he doesn't have a body of work. Yeah. Right? It isn't to say that there aren't great songs. I was playing the other night the song that everybody thinks Cole Porter wrote but didn't. You go to my head. Mm. Because it has references to champagne and people mm. associated and that's Coots and Gillespie. Mm. Now they wrote a couple of other songs, but they wrote that wonderful song. So, mm. in, your, in answer to your question, let's look at maybe a composer that had a body of work that is lesser known. I would venture to say Kurt Weill. He wanted, wow. I wanted, he wanted to be American. He wanted his name pronounced Weill, and not yes. Weil, when he came here. And he embraced Broadway, bringing his own specific genius to the sound. That was one of the first new sounds that I think that came around yes. when he came in the early forties. Because we hadn't heard that those haunting, he gave, he gave great haunting, great haunting. Wow.
3: Yeah. And great harmony, the complex you know, chord progressions and
1: everything. Very you know, just, complex, yeah. which of course was his classical training in Berlin. Of course, yeah. yeah. Somehow, um, somehow it, it just, how do I put this? It, it just fell under being too complex. Uh. When people bought it, the Lady in the Dark—it was a more sophisticated, it was a quite sophisticated thing. But then he would uh, do a song like "My Ship," <clears throat> right? And uh, these were these were tricky. But that why why shouldn't they be included in the songbook as well? You know, there are there are a couple of people that you don't—Bernstein, of course.
4: Mm-hmm. There
1: are a couple of people. I'm not a good a sightwriter as I probably you are, Kevin. I'm I'm not so great as I used to be, but. There are a couple of people you, you, you can't read fake books with. Right, that's they right. They are Leonard Bernstein and Kurt Weill. You, 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 can, you don't see chord symbols and a, and a line and pick it up. You have to see, and Sondheim, the three of them. Right. They wrote the whole thing.
3: The notes. You yeah.
1: have to, at least when, at the first pass of the song, which I always like to when I learn a song, you look at all of what he, and you try to see exactly what he wrote. Oh, that's the passing tone on the left. Oh, there's the F sharp there. So you go through that, at least so you have the template in your mind. And then um, I, you know, one changes that with uh, with trepidation, because one, <laughs> what you think that these theater composers, especially, may have labored long and hard on that. Cole Porter was right. famous workaholic, and sometimes song just appeared. But maybe he said... Do I want to say or or nevertheless here? He, and Alan J. Lerner, another one, who should be in the songbook, Alan J. Lerner famously labored over a word, yeah. conjunction. You know the story, of course, it's hard to believe. But I talked to Mrs. Burton Lane, a lovely lady who just passed away a little while ago. Yeah. And I asked her, is it true that Burton had written the music for On a Clear Day? And Lane they just could not come up with any lyric that he liked. And it was said, I said, she said it's true. How could how could he have written 80, 88, 0 versions of this piece? Yeah. And they and Burton Lane is quoted in his memoirs or something like that. We had all just given up on it and we didn't know what to do. <sighs> no, it's not right, Alan. Go back. So he went back. And one day he came in and played it, and they both knew it was perfect. Mm. It's extraordinary how that created. Yeah. And when you think of the artlessness of that lyric, it is not highfalutin. It is not affected. But does it ever say a lot? Mm-hmm. Does it ever say a lot? That was his genius. I'm a great fan of Alan Jay Lerner's brilliant writing, and So he should be in it, certainly, because the songbook would have to include theater composers. Yeah. Would, is that what, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. Oh, I, oh
2: Absolutely. Oh.
1: Do you think the Great
2: American Songbook is still evolving, or is that book done, published, and we've moved on? (laughs)
1: Um, No, I I think it is. Yeah, in in its own way. Uh, Sondheim changed everything. We know that. And he certainly was in the forefront of a lot of that. Uh, So that certainly would be part of Songbook 808 instead of 101. Uh, (laughs) And then there were all those years that people... Uh, went down the path that he had with more phonetics mm-hmm. and more uh, key changes and all of that, which all started, I think, with someone like Kurt Weill mm-hmm. going into Bernstein, who was young in the in the early 40s. And then I would venture to say the next person in that particular, rather complex part of the song. That would be would be Sondheim, who changed everything forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other songs, when you go to a musical it's, it's generally not in the Sondheim, not mm-hmm. not in the complicated way, except sometimes when Jason Robert Brown, for example, mm-hmm. he, he is able to be complex and yet be, be simple at the same, but clever man that he is. I saw Mr. Saturday Night the other night or whatever that song is, and he wrote this very traditional songs, really? traditional two, four songs. with. So that's because he probably, that's what they needed, and that's what he wrote. Now, as far as new songs, interestingly enough, I saw was very lucky. I think it's an absolutely fantastic production or creation. Is Paradise Square? I can't, oh. I can't remember when I was more excited by that by a musical in oh, year, wow. years. Oh, I'm so happy! And that. It is based on the music of Stephen Foster, mm. but it's modernized and it's so clever. Is it's kind of modernized, although it, the uh, the time is the mid 19th century and. He's a character in the show, as a matter of fact. Oh. Not not identified in the beginning. And they said, oh, I never told you my name. My name is Stephen Foster. But uh, they've taken some of his ballads with some of the changes and, uh, and, may, and modernized them and turned them into modern show tunes. They've done something very clever with that music, and that hasn't necessarily been mentioned too much in the reviews. I do hope that show has a life because it has... Uh, they throw the word incredible around, but I'm here to tell you, the dancing and the singing and everything else merits that adjective. Mm. Oh, that's, so that's
2: fantastic. Make, make sure to see it. Steve, tell us a little bit about what it was like to work at Ted Hooks.
1: Oh, that was uh, a great chapter of my life.
2: And what was Ted Hooks for our listeners who might not be aware?
1: Ted Hook was a dancer, Hollywood guy. He wasn't on Broadway, but he danced in... Um, Vegas club acts, maybe in the early in, in the eighteen, in the nineteen nineties. So he was a young, sprightly dancer that loved showbiz and all of that. But he came to New York, and he ended up being Tallulah Bankhead's personal assistant.
2: Oh well, that's a that's a
1: book course, right there. The, the gentle readers who don't know who Tallulah Bankhead was, look her up. Uh, but <laughs> he's a larger than life character, and so he was very much showbizzy. But then he had the idea to open this club on West 44th Street in the middle of the Broadway theater land. And he called it Backstage. It was very cleverly titled because it was where you went after the show. This is go, It actually ran from about maybe in the early 70s to, to the end of that decade. He had another club after that called Onstage, which didn't really make it. But they were, they were marvelous, so because the shows were a lot of shows were on. Dracula with, with Franklin Jella was next door. So, but it became a place where all the aspirants, all the people who say, boy, I can't wait to throw off that graduating robe and get my ticket on the Greyhound bus and come to New York. And I talked to people who did that. They, said, they mm. finished their high school or wherever they want. And they, as ever, New York being the lodestar of wherever you, you want to go, anything in the music world, they came here. And it was a place, wonderful place, because you could see stars. And if you went there, you were always introduced and you were But also they weren't, uh, the civilians could see them. And, but it was discouraged that they go over and bother them. And that was the difference. Mm-hmm. They felt comfortable there. And he was a very clever guy because he had a place that was a restaurant, very busy bar, and a piano bar. And they coexisted. So you could be in the restaurant, it was a spacious enough place, and be having your meal. Or you could be at the bar, talking, talking, talking. Or you could be at this big piano bar where I... Originally, Peter Howard, the wonderful dance meet, was the first guy. And and I used to sit in, because one does, (laughs) if you like. Then Peter had to leave, so he offered me the job, and I was there for three or four years. It was a great time for me. It was a very... very jazzy, little bit over the top kind of place.
2: Now, Steve, let me ask you this. Do you remember a time that you were performing there and you thought, oh my God, look who just walked into the door?
1: That happened a lot.
2: Yeah. Um, when were you the most starstruck?
1: Liza was one of the, the people that mostly came in a lot. And I and there were times I had memories of that where she got up and said, everybody, get, it was part of the deal. Because right. Ted, they went in and they had a little afterglow after their show. And one night she got up and Cheetah Rivera and Lisa Mordenti were her backup singers. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the other story I mean, I've told it a million times, Ginger Rogers was in town for the 50th anniversary of Girl Crazy. Mm. Has have been from the early 30s? Anyway, mm. that, she was in that, if you know. And anyway, she was very marcelled and blonde and all of that. And so she got up to sing. And I, uh, I said, Miss, Miss Rogers, what, what is the key you'd like to sing this in? And I distinctly remember she had this lovely lacquered, polished nail, and she put it down on a B-flat. She said, I don't know my key, honey, but that's my top note. You figure it out. <laughs> I had to figure it out. I quickly figured it out was B-flat. But And so many people came in, and uh, in the back, that was the year in the back, of this restaurant, that was the year they were plotting and planning Swingy Todd. So that was in the works, and people would be coming there, and chorus people would come, and everybody, every a lot of people. I don't remember as much as I should about. This food. is a magical place. No, it sounds like a fun time. place. I was just starting to sing. You know, I was
3: I, just going to ask you that. that's
4: Wild, yeah.
1: Singing came later. I hadn't. I didn't want to be a singer. I didn't know right. What you were saying when I moved here when I was 30 and I went to this saloon and uh, which I had sat in on a couple of times, they said, well, you sing, don't you? He hadn't heard me sing. He said, you sing? Do we want a guy who can sing and play the piano? And I, of course, said, yes, I do. <laughs> I, I, only had, I only had sung two songs. I mean, I worked all throughout my 20s just as a piano player play, and a bassist, playing, playing a club for dancing and all that. And I did not. I was not at all confident about singing. But then, when I realized that either that or go to the temp job I had signed up for the next day, I oh wow! (laughs) Of course, of course, I sing, and I never. That was (laughs) I I never had to work after that for the rest of my life. But don't tell the public that.
2: We won't. We won't. (laughs) So wait. So you were doing temp jobs during the day and then playing piano
1: at night. Here's how it happened. Came to town in 1968 in the fall, giving myself two or $300. And I said, if I go below that, then I have to get a job. So I had my little room in West 76th Street for $50 a week or something. And finally, the moment had come. So I looked in the want ads, and there was a temp agency called Olsen Temps. The so I said, hmm, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, file sure, clerk. I can do that. And I had done that in the Army and all that. So I signed up for it. And it was supposed to start on Monday. And uh, I went to this place. In those days, they would often feed people. I mean, we, so we had very tired lasagna and wilted lettuce was the fare. But I went by there. And the guy, mafioso guy in those days, a lot of those bars were indeed mafioso. And, of course, his name was Vinny. What else would it be? But <laughs> uh, The guy's leaving. Want a job. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Sure. You sing, don't you? Yeah. Sure. So the next night, I kind of tried to sing through something, but I was—I never was able, never had to work since then.
0: <laughs> Hello, this is Betty Davis, not the young one, the old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. And
3: so once you started singing, did that sort of open up more opportunities for you? Did you say, oh, all let right, right, I'm going to turn this into, you know, Headlining. I wanna I wanna be in charge of my own shows.
1: No, it was actually I backed into that. I didn't walk <laughs> into it ahead of time. Uh it just kind of happened because I knew they had to get the job. But then after that I went to this other bar and uh, I had to sing more because the first one I were was I was alternating with the giving guy, the but then this right. one, I had to sing more. And uh I was uh, nervous about it because this was a piano bar, they were sitting two feet in front of me. And I could play for anything but to sing. Right. And I remember once I was coaching at the time, coaching song, coaching songs, and I was doing what the singer is supposed to do. The music was in front of me. This guy was standing next to me, and I said, here, let me show you how this song goes. And so I was selling the song. I forget what the song was, was, anything. So I really made sense of all of those lyrics because I wanted him to understand them. And I played the melody very carefully. And I said, do you like that song? He said, yeah, I said, but you should sing it. I thought, no, no, I don't, I don't sing love songs. I didn't think anyone would ever be interested in my romantic uh, thoughts or fantasies. But I sang the song that night, and I won't not over dramatize it, but and people didn't ask for their checks and they kind of listened to it. Yeah. And I kind of got into the fact that this could be very powerful. Yeah. You know, I had been used to expressing myself on the keyboard, but to express yourself in songs—really, yeah. right. they want to hear to communicate them. It was a communication, yeah. was yeah. very yeah. powerful for me because I was basically, despite playing the piano and everything, I wasn't particularly audacious. And as a matter of fact, I won't say that a hushed silence yeah. fell on the room. But I will say that people paid attention. And of course, that is the greatest compliment that anybody can do for anything. Yes. They paid attention. And I got vaguely the idea, because I've been in the audience all this time, that people were getting what I got from singers all those years. And I said to myself, you mean I could join the ranks of people who sing? And it was a big revelation to me. And never looked back. I can't imagine not doing it but of course that was a big change and you were you
3: came to New York at a time you know it, it, Rob and I on the show have often lamented the fact that we don't have more night club spots where where you have singers you know, after a show, going to you know like Fifty Four Below now, but yeah. there's not a lot of places. Can you just you came to New York at a time where it seemed like everyone had an act a little bit. Every you know, <laughs> you know, in the '70s is when Barbara Cook came back, and yeah. that was a big momentous idea. So, were you playing for people? Were you were you starting to get into that world a little bit I more, always. more than just playing at you know at uh, you know your well, uh, you know the Cabaret was- Place, Ted Hooks.
1: You know, I, I, was, I mean, I, those jobs in those days were steadies, which are not steadies now. You can't get right. a job for five nights a week for four years. But I was walking with a friend of mine on West 13th Street, and I said, hey, that's where Reno Sweeney was. Do you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, we love hearing about Reno Sweeney's. Please tell us. And no, no, no. no but I, I, so I, we stopped, and I walked in, and I said, this was uh, this, uh, is this where this the stage was, and uh, this is where the mic was. And that was uh, an extraordinary place. It was the first metro chic bar where you could, cl- and they had big people playing there, a the barbecue played there. And yeah. that was the first time that a nightclub had kind of reappeared. I, uh, there were little bars, but this was a nightclub. They had an MC and he brought the people on. Was, and Ryan Marcovici was there. A lot of the singers on Broadway d- tried out there. Uh, th- and th- that was the fancy version. Shortly after that, uh, we had brothers and sisters on West 46th Street. Yep. So that was the, although that was also Broadway people trying to, I saw Helen Gallagher tonight go back there. Oh. So, uh, which isn't to say that 54 Below has kind of the same ethos, meaning that they are supposed to be the place where the Broadway singers go to do their yeah. acts. Isn't that what their, their brief is? Kind? But this was formal. I mean, you could see it for 10 bucks. You could sit at the bar and, and hear these people uh, so there's always been, I think, a place where they want to do, they want to feel what I felt, which is what cabaret is all about, meaning that, of course, if you're Patti Lapone and you're singing Evita, there's a lot of Patti and there's a lot of Evita. Mm-hmm. But if you want, if in the cabaret world, if you want to reveal and have the power of yourself and not necessarily be another person... A lot of, I think, I some, maybe not so many more. Uh, I think Judy Dench or somebody said, "Oh no, no, I would never want to do an act as myself." Oh no, I want to be in the character. Hmm. And uh, but in the in the course of doing that, one could be, of course, very moved by that. And a lot of songs are character songs. Yeah. But if you just want to sing a song that moves you and that moves the house. I guess it, it was a little scary at the beginning because you have to, uh, how do I say, um, get rid of doubts.
3: Right, you have to have so much confidence to say my version, me, who I am, is yes. going to be enough.
1: Who would that, who would want to listen to that? So you have to get rid of all of those voices and just do it and, uh, and double take the hindmost, as it were.
2: Steve, this feels like a perfect time to ask you. And I know that you teach master classes all across the world on this subject, but let's imagine someone is listening to this podcast and they want to create their own cabaret show. What are some tips and advice that you can pass on to them about how to make the show successful?
1: There's a really nice and talented singer in London called Gary Williams. And he wrote a book called How to Sing Cabaret, or a couple of people, David Sabella has a Oh yes chapters in his book about that. I would probably do it the way I did. I uh, fortunately have have had good people working with me in the beginning. I mean, when I was playing it backstage, I never uh, I never particularly played an arrangement for a director or for a friend. He said, does this work? work?" I just played a bunch of songs and sang Bobby Short, my model, my great model of all time. In case the listeners don't know, he was uh, uh, Very sophisticated performer, singer, pianist. Very specific style from the fifties on into the into the nineties. I guess. after that he'd lived into the yeah oh yeah yeah he anyway he was he was my model because I said no one could ever be quite as sophisticated and charming as as he. I think you have to go with songs you love rather than. Mm. And, and then think, and I and you know the advice is: let's not necessarily think where it's going to end. Or I mean, if you unless you you have to do something that will bring in money for you, and then you can't. And you have to play to the audience. But why don't you just pick a bunch of songs that you really like doing, and then we can work from there. That's one way I do it. Uh, and I, I had a marvelous have. And I haven't worked together for a long time. Young English guy. And I was uh, performing um, in England, and um, we went down to some place. And he, very in his own bold way, he changed my life. He said, uh, "You don't seem to be enjoying yourself much more these days." This was there was a great club in England called Pizza on the Park, which was up until about ten years ago was the place we all played. And I had done that, and I was getting sloppy. I wasn't. I guess i wasn't enjoying it and he said i can help you and uh i knew the way you know stuff and i said i knew i needed someone to bring me back and to make sense of what i was doing and to question me i don't understand that word why are you using that so things that a director would do and that began to be a most fruitful relationship I mean, we did five or six shows that way and uh it was really a collaborative effort because he was a musician and he said let's try here i bring that bring that quote over in here. And so it was a lot of fun really co-creating those shows. I did Adam Miller with him. I did Cameron and Ed with him, and a couple of other things. So if you're looking for a tribute show, I we see them all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, and somebody was doing a Sarah Vaughan show. I mean, I guess that's easy to do. It's an, another kind of challenge because you want to be yourself and yet you want, you can't make People forget what Frank Sinatra sounded like, but it's a different kind of challenge. These days, I've done so many tribute shows that I I kind of like these last few shows singing songs that I haven't sung for a while. And I bring a bunch of friends and I have one guy who specifically is very good for helping me organize the shows and give them some kind of a thing. The other uh, God or Goddess, as it turns, when I came, I was so lucky because I came into when Mabel Mercer and well, uh, oh, it's they, time to I'm definitely talk about her. her the words in force, in good, in in full force, and I, I have I couldn't have imagined better models for what I had to do. Could you give us just a little for those of us who
3: may not be as familiar with the work of Mabel Mercer? Could you just give us a little history and your experience?
1: Well. I will tell you the one story that I always tell. I was in this, it was in the mid 60s. I had friends in New York, went back and forth and all that, saw shows. Uh, And I I was in Washington, but I talked a weekend because I was was very au fait with New York City and and the shows. So I had this one friend uh, who was a year older than I was, and I thought he was the, the apex of the sophistication. So I would come up, and he said, and we have to go and see Mabel Mercer. And I said, who is that? He said, well, it's, it's just it's unlike anyone you know. She's not like Dinah Shore. She's not like Doris Day. She's a different kind of singer. I said, okay. And we went with a couple of friends, and it was the days of those little small watts. This was on 56th 6th Street, and it was a place called that had two floors called upstairs at the downstairs and downstairs at the upstairs. These little review spots were quite popular. They were kind of left over from the 50s, not jazz spots. They were more often they had French names, Lantrie, Mystique. Uh, so there there we go. And we sat down there and, um, our, and out comes, well, she was in her middle age, a rather dignified woman and she had a little shawl on. And, and instead of standing in front of a microphone, she sat down in a chair. So far, so good. I had just been recovering from some Uh, ill-starred love affair, as one does when you're (laughs) in your twenties. And um, she sat down, and my eyes began to water after one phrase. She said, "Try to remember." Try to remember. And she moved me. How did she make me want to cry? No one ever had. I'd never experienced that at a movie. It's a to a movie, maybe reading a sad book, but that was so powerful. And she often would say, "Oh, I, it's just I'm just singing the song." She wouldn't say, "Well, I go into she didn't have a method. She just was a superb artist, and she used every moment of her life until she sat down that day." And I realized the power of of, of singing that kind of reflective, looking back song. And actually, those those songs are a, a big part of the American songbook everybody right. has a little bit of a past to look at oh, nice yeah. to memory and all that anyway so that was my first experience with her I got to know her a little bit and we uh, and I visited her once upstate but she was an extraordinary woman you can get a little bit of it from the videos that are available but i I fear that most of it if you didn't catch what she was doing it would just sound like kind of a maybe an affected voice right which is unfortunate that people didn't have the the pleasure or of seeing that in person, but some people are better in person. I mean, some people are fantastic. Yeah. Voices can convey it all on a, on a uh, through a recording. And I said th- the two great ones, or three or four great ones, the Streisand, for example, once whatever that emotion it comes through her voice and, and Frank Sinatra, of course, <laughs> the greatest of all. But um, Mabel was very much a maybe an acquired taste, but if you went there and you were moved, I can tell you, you wanted to have that happen again, huh. that you wanted to go and be moved. Maybe in your rest of your days, maybe you didn't have a partner, maybe you just were dreaming about romance, but when you went there and she sang that way, mm-hmm. tears came to your eyes, a very potent thing to do to someone.
2: I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about what was it like to reopen the Oak Room. Yes. <laughs> well,
1: that was Which is... yeah, We had... There was a man who really, uh, one of the most important people in my life, was a, a cabaret impresario named Donald Smith, who loved cabaret. And it was he, as a matter of fact, who brought back Mabel Mercer when she was kind of not known so much anymore. And he he was a great fan of these, mainly these ladies, who could use their experience and their musicality. And he presented, represented presented them, a lot of them. And he's, he's the one that started something called the Cabaret Convention 25 years ago. Yes, He came to me and said, I've got this idea to have people from England and just all over and doing these, doing songs. And the first one was five hours long and, <laughs> but it went on and on it still goes on and it's opportunity yeah. to, to, to sing. And of course it, it was great. And he loved the Algonquin because it represented the class of the 30s and the 20s, which he came to New York in the 50s looking for. So he thought I might be the one to reopen the place in 1981. It had been closed for many, many years, and it worked out wonderfully well. I was there off and on for about eight or nine years. I loved the place. It was probably my favorite place to have worked because it, you don't. It's not now. It's just totally gone. But you went in, and all of a sudden, the energy of of the twenties was there, and the great the way that it looked, and the the way slightly eccentric aspects of it and when you went into that room I'm not saying there were ghosts there or not saying there was particular energy there that I could clock but in my mind it made me feel great and and so uh, when I knew that people like Porter and Gertrude had been in that very room that was a little bit of a helped me to to join in the uh, in the mood of that the energy if you will of that place. That was a a wonderful, wonderful place for me to work. How many shows did you do a night there? We didn't have shows. We had, we were there and did sets. Ah, Mm. okay. And, but Bobby was the first one to do shows. Mm. When I came to town, uh, I went to see him. He was working at some place or another, but then they, he went to Cafe Carlisle. I think he started off working Monday through Saturday sets from nine to one or something like that. But he was the first one, and I remember he was shocked. Number one, he gave himself two nights off. He went work Tuesday through Saturday, and for the first time in the cabaret world, he had show times. So you came for the early show or the late show. No one oh. ever worked. oh! And so the, it kind of was already edging toward a theatrical experience, rather than just... But when I first did one the Algonquin, I arrived at nine, and I played till one, and I played half an hour, and and uh, maybe then I played a little bit less or more, and whoever came in, it was kind of a rather glamorous, uh, not a piano bar because of the piano, but it was just sets. We did sets, and somebody, oh, I think I'll change that. That's all different now because it's kind of blended into theatricality where you know exactly yeah. what sets and where the lighting is and all of that, which is not a bad thing. Um, the merging of the theater and, and caparais is fine. It, it enhances the experience of it. But that was great for me because uh, it really confirmed me as this thing that I am, which is mm-hmm. the all of that.
3: Yeah. And how have you seen, you know, cabaret, mm, I don't want to use the word change, but let's say evolve over the last, let's say 45 years or so. I mean, since you play the Algonquin rooms so even uh, before uh, when you were, how have you seen the, sort of the art form change and audiences change? How, or have they?
1: I will address the latter for, I don't think they've changed the audiences. I mean, they are, the audiences are certainly older mm. the, the, for reasons that we all know. I mean, that isn't the music that people seek Who mm. um, are younger people. They're just not interested in it. And uh, I don't say that in any, I say that with a little bit of wistfulness. Mm. My nephew is a wonderful musician. And he happens to love music, and he knows all about jazz, blues. But what he doesn't know is about cabaret. It seems to be some kind of rarefied topic, and uh, only not they only know it uh, from the movie. They know that. Oh, I know that. Well, that was that movie that she was in. And I wonder, are people? I offer this just as a rhetorical question. Are people um, afraid or ill at ease? about these the vulnerability in the in their own worlds I always felt in those early days that I hadn't paid my money wasn't worth it unless I had tears that come to my eyes at one point mm-hmm. I wanted that I wanted I didn't have that in my everyday life I wanted to go a place where that was genuine deep feelings would come out not that I was balling on, on the tablecloth but uh, but I don't think that people are that makes maybe they're afraid of it maybe i don't know you you're you're younger kevin But i mean when you go to hear like like an adele or something like that does does she sing love songs that are yeah okay? i, I, really I think so
3: yeah and i think it definitely i mean you should definitely i should check her out because yeah,
1: she, she's hugely popular and so very she, much so. yeah so and my Nephew might know about her and might have have loved her. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think the styles have changed, but I think the sentiment, I think people still want to be moved. But Um, um, I wish that we could bridge the gap somehow and and make sure that the younger generation appreciates these songs the way that we all do as well.
1: I will say this, that uh, the Cabaret Convention, of which I spoke, uh, still goes on. Katie Sullivan now runs the foundation, which was named... After this wonderful singer named Mabel Mercer, and uh, a, a very enthusiastic couple, the Elauss, as a matter of fact, he was a pianist in his youth, uh, have a contest which is now going on where they go to all of the performing arts high schools in Manhattan, four or five of them out there. And uh, the word gets out: do you want to win this prize and have a have a, a seat in this convention? And I watched it this year. They only had one live night. The others were, of course, virtual, and that was fine. And uh, the four finalists from the competition, of which there were a couple hundred people tried out for it because the reward was a nice piece of cash and an opportunity to perform. And I was blown away by their talent. It was extraordinary. And uh, yeah. right one, there was a guy that sang probably the most moving version of When I Fall In Love I've ever heard. Mm. <sighs> And when you think about it, if he's never been in love, that's what that song would be. Yeah. Maybe he's heard about it. He's 18. And maybe, so when I fall in love, for instance, for the first time, how wonderful it would be. And I, I was so moved by that. And he sang it perfectly. You had to give no thing. Oh, well, he's eliding it. He's, he's doing some modern thing. He just sang it straight from his heart. I guess the only place that you would find younger people who, would be up for that is in a theater school right? because right. They, uh, theaters have plays that move yeah. people and they're making people laugh, which is not far away from what a cabaret actually should do. So
3: if someone is new, let's say you've got a young artist in their early twenties and they yeah. want to get into the cabaret. It, it, is it, it feels kind of like a club a little bit. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It, there,
1: there's... It, it, it is a little bit of that. I won't say uh-huh. indeed, but it is. Unfortunately, it's, um, it's also expensive because you have to pay for your you know pay for your musicians and figure it all out and and then uh we have places in town here that are wonderful proving grounds for gallery acts like don't tell mom but classically and there were three different venues and they're small and you can kind of get the feeling of it and Sidney Meyer is marvelous and he's been behind so many people who started out in this business mm-hmm. but were it not for him and for that place I the places seem to be opening. Uh, for, I mean, there's a new place in Chelsea. There's a new place here. So New York continues to have cabaret spaces, new ones that are filled with people. But again, that's New York City. But that's why right. people come here, because they can find uh, a, a place for them to do their act. The green room, on forty two is very nice, yep. but, this, but they have people... Of my bad, as they say, that whom, whose names I do not know. I'm sure if were I to go there, I'd have a great time. The people are singing, but I will say this I will say this they're singing songs that are fine, yes, but I yearn for one standard. They don't sing the standards. They don't <laughs> sing the standards as we know them from the songbook. Uh, I would love a Jerome Kern. I would love a Rogers- mm. And They sing a lot of songs by their contemporary composers and maybe their friends or have written these tunes. They're okay. And they let the performer be shown in a way, but there are just so many great songs that would be challenging for them and moving for the audience. They just, maybe they think that uh, sadly that that ship has sailed and that no one's going to come unless they sing songs by Somewhat that the audience might know. And that that's the challenge, because you want to bring people, just as you friends when you're starting out, you want to bring right. people in. So you're not going to go to you're not going to leave your comfort zone of current songs, perhaps that they might know or that Adele has sung or something. And you're not going to go back to the songs that, that were my comfort zone
4: in the right.
1: times gone by. And so isn't it funny? I mean, I'm on I'm in my little zone over there looking at them, out of my zone, and then they're their zone looking at me. So uh, it's it's a tricky thing to do, but you have to want to do it like anything. You have to wake up in the morning and say, God damn it, I'm going to be an actress no matter what it takes. And you give a lot of your time to it. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but you have tried to do it. I I remember Bobby Short was asked once in an interview a a similar question to what you've just said to me. he said, oh, oh, I would (laughs) don't even try it. (laughs) He was even (laughs) encouraging. (laughs) Fortunately, I didn't listen to him. Because it's, it's a hard gig. Yeah. You know, it's a hard gig. It's very rewarding if it works out. But what can I say? I don't really have an answer for that except that no, uh, do it. Wonderful. Because it will be wonderful for you to do it, for you to look back and say, yes, I, sh- I told people what I felt. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. You shared and you and made people feel and think and, um, you know, appreciate art in a whole new way. Yeah. So I think that's oh, really I commendable.
1: But remember what they felt, not necessarily what you sang.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and you have some gigs coming up. I mean, I saw that you're going to be singing with uh, Le- our good friend Leroy Reams yes. on June June 12th uh, at the Cutting if Room. Leroy's, I believe if I, I was saw.
1: With Leroy's crippling shyness, he'd have a mustache. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> we just can't
1: ever get him to talk. He just can't oh, get yeah, him to tell oh, any no, stories. You know, it's just... just really sad in a way. Thank God for him. He is just out there. He doesn't care. He tells it. And he can say the most scabrous things, but he has this great likability. <laughs> You're, so right. yes. You're so right. That's why we love him. And he's done everything. I don't think he's done yep. a show but he's done a lot of musicals. And he's done a wonderful cabaret act, which he continues to do very successfully. Yes, I'm going to be uh, joining millions who will be. But I, I can't tell a story about it because he tells all the say. He tells the best stories anyway. <laughs> I'm not supposed to add possibly to anything that he might do. Yeah, that's coming up and I'm I'm very happy to be going out to the West Coast. I, I, I had several times in Los Angeles years ago, but I have so many friends who have moved to that area. But this is in Palm Springs and I there's a nightclub up there, so I'm going to go out there and I love to travel and I love to you know, I love to take the gospel around when I can. I love Birdland. I think it's a very classy place and I think the guy that runs it Johnny Valenti is a, really a genius in the business world. Some he's kept that whole, that classic, beautiful club going yep. throughout the whole business. And he's always coming up with new things. And it has the feel of an old nightclub. That's what's curious. And mean, we don't have a you know, cigarette girl going around, but it mm-hmm. has a classic feel to the place.
2: Steve, it has been such an honor to get to talk to you. This is just absolutely incredible. And Kevin and I have both been fans of yours for such a long time.
1: Can you, what can I say? But thank you. It's been great being with you fellas. And uh, I now have my homework because I have to go back and Set aside three or four days to listen to all your other interviews. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, Steve. Oh, I, oh, I, can so copy, I, I can do a couple of uh, no sleep nights. I just go through the whole.
2: Thing. <laughs> great, great. Steve, this was an absolute oh, pleasure. I cannot wait to so see much. you in person again. Okay, my dear. Take care. Thank you.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode and a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy and more shill for us. And a
2: big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki.
3: And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in.
2: In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So, head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars, and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day.
3: Or, you can leave us just one star, and you can make us feel as baddy, baddy, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in boston where annie dreamt that she was being adopted but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it
4: yes and it
2: was betty it was bizarre i was there i was oh god so head on over to itunes and make us feel even more special than we already do